Hello and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Native American community from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Andrea Carlson. She's a citizen of the Grand Portage Ojibwe, and she's a painter and a screen printer based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, though currently lives in Chicago, Illinois. She received her Bachelor of Arts at the University of Minnesota in 2003 and her MFA from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. I think what makes Andrea so interesting is her ability to address the relationships of indigenous artists and museums. She recognizes and addresses the historical problems that institutions like museums with their colonial roots and their detriment affects to the indigenous people, but also how indigenous artists are now taking control of the narrative and reshaping the art landscape. She also talked about the concept of indigenous futurism, which I find so absolutely incredible. So let's jump into this interview with Andrea. Andrea, hi. Thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Joe. Really appreciate being here. Oh, this is a pleasure. Um, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us about your background and where you're from? Um, Buju, Buju, Joe, Andrea Carlson, Nindishnikas, Kageyasigik, Nindago, Gichio Nigaming, Nindunjaba, actually, Ishkonegan. Nindishkonegan, Chicago Nindunjaba, Mikanak Nindodame, So my name's Andrea Carlson. I'm Grand Portage, Ojibwe. I um Turtle Clan and I live in Chicago now. Oh wow. Yeah. How long have you been in Chicago? Um, I've been in Chicago for about five years and I was in Minneapolis prior and I've, you know, lived in Minnesota my whole life, but we're getting a little wanderlust and wanted to kind of see the world and Chicago is only six hours away <laughs> <laughs> that's the furthest we could probably go well Chicago is one of those cities that it's it's an international city you know so uh, having that Chicago experience is much like living in San Francisco or New York or Vancouver or someplace I would say yeah yeah it's it's great there's a really cool community in Chicago of of native artists and indigenous futurists that are I, you know, I've just absolutely fallen in love with the community there, with the community of artists. Indigenous, um, indigenous and futurists. What, what is that? I've not heard that term before. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, like there's Afrofuturism. A lot of people popular in popular culture right now think of things like Black Panther. But, um, you know, and that has existed for, you know, actually uh, uh, for, for a really long time. Like that has really old, old origins. And and indigenous people looking, you know, towards survival, towards uh, imagining themselves into the future and imagining our survivals. So indigenous futurism kind of piggybacks off of Afrofuturism as far as terminology goes, but it's, um, it's, it's artists that are kind of, you know, putting our imagery, our, you know, uh, our ideas of, of survival and existence going forward. And, and it's, um, I think it's, it's kind of grounded to health and healing and, um, and survival. So it's, it's what we've always been doing, you know, but it's, it's now kind of become this, um, 
maybe art movement or or a term that native artists can can rally around and support each other under so it's really it's cool <laughs> i love that there's a there's a term to because everything you've talked about it reminds me of my last 20 25 years working in the northern plains art <clears throat> excuse me and oh i, I like that <laughs> i really like that term so you let's see here i first really became acquainted with your well, really with your work uh, with an exhibition at the Plains, uh, Wasimo Fashizi. Please uh, correct my my wording, um, <laughs> my pronunciation. I think, I think you did good. Um, sorry, my I just lost my headphones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I that's where I first familiar, but I think it was speaking with uh, Laura Youngbird, who uh, curated uh, that exhibition. I think she was talking about you were just moved to Chicago or you were in that transition or something like that. So I, I was a little aware that you were out east a little ways from here. Yeah. Yeah, that um, that was a really cool exhibition. And I feel like um, currently there's a number of exhibitions going on that is um, they're, they're starting to celebrate the work of Native women in particular. Our, I always kind of, I don't know if it's half-heartedly joking, but, um, but the arts, just, you know, the, the, the arts industry in general really love our men. And um, so I think that it's it's starting to uh, people are starting to wonder what Native women are making, and we've always made stuff. We've always been like you know, as far as uh, you know, as far as like visual culture and going all the way back, it, it, women just we made stuff and we wanted stuff to look good. And so I think that 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 show really illustrates you know how how we adorned ourselves and how we you know um, we've always just. Uh, we've always made things look really, really cool and interesting. And, um, and so I think, think that there's maybe a, a more general push to know what, what the women are up to. And I think that's, you know, it's definitely something that, um, that I've benefited from as far as my career goes is that, that there's, there's finally interest there where, you know, I kind of feel terrible that, you know, for so many years we've been, absolutely ignored and you know in this moment you know someone like me has benefited from from so much labor that has gone on before before I was even born so before any of us were even born so mm -hmm. um so we're definitely uh our ancestors wildest dreams but also we're you know on on their shoulders so yeah it it really breaks my heart uh at the museum you see so many uh, items from a hundred plus years ago uh, where the creators were unknown. Yep. However, when there are items that were created by men, there's a name attached to them, whether they're yep. ledger art or some sort of uh, tangible craft item. There always seems to be an effort to, to identify the male that created it. So I, I totally agree. And I think some of that also comes out of like, like modernism comes out of this hero artist mentality of like, it's this, you know, great man making this great thing. And it's the artist vision and kind of, um, you know, uh, whereas I feel like anonymous is it's, it's sad because we don't know who created the object, but at the same time, I feel like maybe communities could absorb objects 
um, in a different way and, and an entire community could take credit for a thing that's made and um, the individual as opposed to like a group collaboration and making things is really celebrated, I think, uh, in the arts industry and, you know, in, in Western constructs of, of art making. I think that the, that individual, that, you know, kind of bootstraps type artist, that like hero artist, that hero singular artist and singular vision is something very celebrated by, you know, by Europe. Whereas I feel like with Native art, maybe, you know, even now with collaborations that are happening, um, that the individual artist is, you know, it can be secondary. We can be anonymous and we can help each other out um, and just contribute without necessarily needing what, what, what others, what other artists have, have needed. Um, I sure, I, I think, see it both ways. Like I've helped on other projects where I wasn't named other artists work. And, uh, but I also like having my own style, my own content, my own research where it's not necessarily just attributed to a people group, you know, not attributed to my, my nation or my gender, where I can also kind of have, you know, kind of have it a little bit both ways where I can, can, um, you know, be celebrated under those Western, um, uh, you know, things that, that are kind of upheld in the culture. And then, then, um, but I, I also do a lot of work behind the scenes, you know, helping other people with their projects and, and whatnot. And I don't need to, you know, I don't always need to have my name on the, on the list of contributors. I can, I can work anonymously too. So. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your influences, uh, your biggest art influences, um, and family. I find that's a, a big one as well. I, I absolutely love this question because, um, you know, just what I was just talking about of like a lot of times, you know, when you're asked your influences, people want to see your influences in, as an artist in your work. They want to, if I say George Morrison, who was also Grand Portage, um, if I say his name, people then look for George's like elements of his work and my work. My work's very figurative. It has lots of objects and 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 landscapes and and um, characters, and it's almost like a comic book. Whereas George's work is much more abstract. Um, but you know, I growing up, I met him a few times, and my dad knew him, and his um, ex-wife Hazel Belvo was my mentor at MCAD. So I, even though like the connection is very tangential, it's very. Um, he definitely influenced my, not only just like what I make and the forms that I make, but um, he's influenced you know career choices. When I was 16 years old, I, I we were at an art show up in Grand Marais and he was there his glasses were all taped up and he's he you know my dad was bragging up about how what a wonderful artist I was and he said you know start off young and paint until you die and he's like don't let anyone discourage you from going to school go pursue a, a college degree and an MFA he's like do that and I thought, you know, as a 16-year-old, I was like, of course I'm going to go to college, <laughs> like, you know, but, but I, you know, now it's, it's like, you know, he, he, he was kind of like, there's, there's a path for you and, you know, you're, you're going to find your own path in, into it. But, um, but he was really, I think he was very helpful. And then I organized all of my landscapes, all my seascapes with this 
continuous horizon line, which he did with a lot of his work as well. So even though our work doesn't look alike, I feel like there are some, 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 you know, formal things he did that I've, I've definitely um, absorbed into my own work. And then my family is, you know, lives in Duluth and Grand Marais and, um, and connected to Grand Portage, but my dad's an artist. So um, I was always encouraged. I never felt like I, I couldn't become an artist. It was always something like, no, we're all artists. There's not, there wasn't really an option. And then my older sister became a NICU, a neonatal intensive care nurse, and my little sister is a therapist, <laughs> a drug and alcohol re- rehabilitation therapist. So they're doing very pragmatic, practical things. They're, you know, we're, we're hearing all about essential workers, and my whole family is essential workers, and then I'm the artist. <laughs> self-indulgent career maybe (laughs) (laughs) i'm sort of in a similar boat my my wife is a physician and the the joke with with, with, that i have is yeah my wife's a doctor i draw (laughs) right i mean and i'm very happy with it too (laughs) (laughs) we're quality of life people we are we are are the the creators the designers uh of everything yeah Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to to make fun of artists here in this space, but I will say that um, you know that when it comes to to you know very physical things or interacting with people very socially and phys- physically, I always feel like the rest of my family is so much better at that. And I like you know kind of going away into my studio for hours on end, and then you know as you know as an artist, like you can spend hours in the studio weeks at a time and then when you come out of that and you're expected to do artist talks or go out on stage and talk about your work after you've been so reclusive for so long it's such a contrast that I when I'm in heavy like deadline studio uh you know I'm trying to to meet deadlines I'll come out of that cave and just be socially odd it's really bizarre it's like people how do you deal with that now (laughs) I fully rate the relate the the idea that I do something like this a podcast uh completely goes against the grain of who I am uh because I'm so private and I'm so guarded um yeah I I just it's it's funny where we find ourselves with being within the art world yeah yeah no, it's, it's, but I wouldn't give it up for anything else. And, totally. you know, it's, you know, if you could just do it, just doing art and not have to do that second, the social part, that would probably be ideal to me. I haven't figured out how to get that though, how to um, have people, you know, not talk to me and just do the artwork <laughs> and then send it out. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone figures that out, email me and let me know how, how I can have that career. Cause I'm working towards that. <laughs> right on. So how have you developed your career, uh, both through college and post-college? So I did, you know, I took George Morrison's advice and I went and got um, a master, or my undergrad is in art and American Indian studies at the University of Minnesota. Um, I really, I really enjoyed learning Ojibwe and um, Dennis Jones taught Ojibwe then. And um, I almost wanted to pursue linguistics. I I just fell so madly in love with Ojibwe. Um, but then I could also draw and paint, and I loved that as well. So I um, decided to pursue the MFA in visual studies at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. 
after I graduated in 2003. And then it's a two-year program at MCAD. So um, by 2005, I was, I was, you know, I had a, ter- they call it a terminal degree <laughs> with my MFA. I survived it. And, um, but I'm, I'm really glad that I, I pursued that, um, that I, I went the art direction. Cause I still, I'll always carry the language inside of me and I'll always be, I'll be a life, a lifetime learner of Ojibwe. And, and I'm, constantly cracking the dictionary open and looking up different things and seeing how terms are related. Mm. Um, and that's also like, I think it's just, it's really good as an artist to ground yourself in other studies, not just pursue art, but, but have a really robust, you know, research life. And so I do that. And I mean, as far as the career goes and how I've like shaped or informed it, I just, um, I think that, not that I'm going to give anyone a ton of great advice because there's so many different paths to take and so many different types of art careers. But I think that you really have to rely on, on your friends. So my first show right out of, not my first show, but my, my first museum show right out of grad school was with artist Jim Denemy. Um, He's Lakota Ray Ojibwe. And um, we did a two person show at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and you know, just being able to apply with him because he was well known in the community. And I was, you know, at that point, you know, had didn't have really an exhibition track record, but he, you know, allowed me to submit a two person exhibition proposal to um, the Minnesota exhibition program at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and our application was accepted. And that was, you know, my first big museum show where, where I was kind of, my work was introduced to the world. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think that there's so many different paths, but you need your friends. Um, you need to um, need to su- su- support each other, and you need to, you know, I mean, again, I don't want to dole out a lot of advice, but there are so many different ways artists can support each other's careers. If it's just, you know, if you have a studio visit with a curator and you think they might dig someone that you know, go ahead and, like, give them the list of 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 people that you think they should be looking into don't you know hoard resources like share it and spread it there's plenty of opportunity to go around and we don't need to you know the the hyper competitive artists that are trying to you know that are jealous of each other and you know trying to maybe you know um not do that for each other i i don't see you know i don't see them around like becoming terribly successful it happens Mm -hmm. but um but I think that in the arts world, it's a perseverance game. And if, if, you're, if you're operating in a very negative way, it's, it's, it's not going to help you. So, I've, again, I don't want to dole out of a bunch of advice, but I've seen, I've seen it happen where, where people have been really um, you know, cruel to, to other artists. And that's just that's not the world that I operate in. No, that's that's a great point. Um, you know, I think about a number of people that I've worked with over the years for you know a couple of decades now, and they've been so giving of their time and, and their resources, uh, whether that's well again time or energy, or connections to other people. Um, I I totally see what you're saying. Um, you come across characters who are, for lack of a better term, toxic. Um, 
and they're not around that long. You know, they, uh, despite how maybe, um, inclined they are artistically, you know, um, no, I think that's, that's a really good point. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I do, I do think it's, it's the best job in the world if you can keep it, you know, if you can hold on to it, it's, it's so very rewarding. It, for me, at least it's not to totally brag, but it's like provided travel and I've been able to meet really interesting people. And, you know, even though I want to be a hermit and stay in my studio, it has afforded me, you know, this total um, extroverted life as well. Hmm. So. Can we talk a little bit about your work? Um, what, what, I guess, um, medium that you work in? So I'm primarily am starting to do more large scale works on paper, kind of um, panel paper, uh, really heavy arches, like 400 pound paper, um, like almost like cardstock. And I can put a number of different materials on it. So it has um, areas that are gessoed that have oil on them and then color pencil and marker and gouache and, and pen and ink and so it's, it's very layered and I can have really translucent watercolor layers that are, have graphite over the top of them. Um, so material, materialistically on, on, and when it comes to my mediums, I, anything that can go on paper and I've tried to find a way to get everything on paper, I'll, I'll use it. Um, and then what you actually see when you look at my work is sometimes some body of work is, it looks kind of like seascapes with various objects that have washed up on shore. Um, there's text interwoven in the imagery that makes it kind of look like a film poster or 1970s, you know, uh, exploitation film poster maybe. And then recently with my very large scale works, there's like this kind of prismatic quality where I have repetition of imagery that kind of, you know, like they, it, it almost looks like waves or a wake behind a boat, but it's made up of, of imagery and stacked landscapes. So, um, so visually that's what you can kind of see. Um, I would also kind of perhaps uh, attach that to the landscape up in, in Grand Portage and Grand Marais. It's just, it's, you see, you look over Lake Superior and this, there's this like infinite line we can't see the other side of the lake it just looks like it's just like it's it's infinity that 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 line and so I always kind of you know you can stare at it and you can see some maybe clouds and it looks like there's mountains and but you can't see mountains there's no way you could see the other side so I kind of pull story and pull imagery from that line from that infinite you know infinite line on the horizon and um and then these, the objects, things that are on the shores of my work are, are like foreign, like they've washed up and they're out of place. And it's maybe a metaphor for talking about museums and how museums collect from all over the world. You know, they're colonial institutions that collect things from the colonies, bring them back and possess them and glass boxes. So I've, I'm making my own landscape. The museum is a landscape, make my own landscape and have my own collection but more happenstance more things that have 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 come there accidentally so that's what the work looks like um i comment on museums a lot i think that they're that some museum collections can be very irresponsible towards indigenous people all over the world so there's a there's commentary in the work as well that has to do with museums as like the wendigo this you know 
winter cannibal monster that misidentifies who he consumes, just eats and eats and eats, and then um, is never satiated, always just just acquiring without fully understanding or identifying what it's consuming. And so I I don't know if museums like me uh, making that analogy. I mean, uh, some curators dig it because it's it's like they, you know, they see it. They see it in their work environment. And they know that it exists. They know that museums can cause harm to Indigenous people. And they see the colonization and the institutional racism of their institutions. So they like it if an artist calls it out, you know, someone on the outside, <laughs> throwing rocks. it feels like having an ally sometimes yeah great yeah and i you know if if i'm only working with a museum for a short amount of time that's something that's also you know because it's just it's not like i get a regular paycheck from the institutions i can i can jump off at any moment um so yeah So, but then there's some museums that even like if you're critical of their collections and you're critical of what they've done, you know, the bodies they've, they have stolen from graves and whatnot of indigenous people, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're really critical, you're still talking about them. And I think museums like it when we, they, they like being a subject. They like even, you know, it's, and it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe like almost egotistical, but it's, it's definitely like they're not off, they don't see themselves as off limits as far as the subject goes. I'm, so I'm employed by a museum. <laughs> Let's talk about the planes. <laughs> Let's talk about unemployment. Um, <laughs> boy, I really want to jump into this. Um, <laughs> How's work? <laughs> so. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> so, I can tell you some plain stories. Oh. <laughs> You're like, like, please don't. <laughs> I would like to hear those stories. I think it's going to be an edited part of this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Um, y- your point is, I think, spot on. You know, I, I think uh, there's. <clears throat> a lot of institutions like having their name out there. And one, a few years ago at the Walker, you know, they had the scaffold. And I don't think, I don't know if a lot of institutions got the point. No. They, they love controversy. I'm not saying the Walker specifically, but institutions love controversy. They love talking about other institutions and it's a self-serving type of uh, scenario. Um, yeah. But I think it's important that we have representation and we have a voice so we can call out those things. Um, in my experience working within institutions, oftentimes I'm, the voice of um, of caution before they go too far with something, uh, whether it's um, white saviorism, whether it's a what what I have called uh, a brown person fetish um, exhibition curated by white people. 
I think that's important to, to name and call out so that they don't do that. So it's a learning point for them and it's not a misstep and a misrepresentation uh, for, for cultures out there. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And like, you know, speaking of the, the Walker, when it was negotiated to have the scaffold, Sam Durant's piece that the scaffold removed and, and taken down um, in those negotiations that the Walker was having. And I don't know if it was negotiations or conversations or, you know, like in, I don't know how to characterize that, that communication, but um, I do know that a number of native people that consulted with the Walker said, we would like to see more. This is, you know, the content of this piece is about native. It's our story. We should be telling our story, mm-hmm. not, not mine, not Ojibwe people's story, but you know, it's a Dakota story. And there's so many contemporary Dakota artists and there's so many native artists in general who are not being represented by your space, but you will go kind of contract an artist out or buy an artist's work that you think has um, content that's relevant to this space or to this area. And, but he's telling, it's not his story to tell. And it's, um, it's, it's traumatized or it's like re, uh, inflicting pain on a community. And so then some in the conversations about taking it down and removing it, I know that it, that there was this, why not, why not actually work with native people? Why not talk to us? Why not work with native artists? So I know that in the, the wake of that, the Walker did start collecting artists, and I think Danny Whitehawk Polk is in the collection. My work is in the collection. Frank Big Bear's work is in the collection. A number of Native artists then entered the collection through a door or a portal that was made by something really terrible, uh, some some really, you know, uh, 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 mean thing that the Walker had had done to the community by making us by putting us in that position where we had to, to protest their decisions. Mm-hmm. So then that, then that also puts native artists in a really weird position where the community is saying, put native artists in your collection. And then when the native artist is acquired by the museum, it looks as though we're benefiting off of the, the harm that the museum has done. I mean, and it doesn't just look like it, it is, we're benefiting very real from, from something that, that has happened and from the community rallying around having this removed so even though it was a native community request that the walker do this Mm -hmm. for reparative efforts it puts native artists in a really odd situation um you know and and it also like the you know the the whitney museum of american art has had lots of scandals you know over the biennials over the last several years and then artists that choose to participate in those biennials despite you know, things like, like that open casket piece where, um, or where, you know, it's harmful to, to the, the imagery is harmful to a community. Um, then the artists that continue to show in that, those exhibitions are then kind of, you know, maybe called out for like, well, why are you still participating with this harmful institution? And it's something I think about, I've been rightfully called out for, having my work purchased and shown at the the Walker post scaffold. But I also like understand that it was also a request of the community as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, as an, as an artist, I want my work seen. I don't, I don't want to be part of that indigenous erasure that institutions are so comfortable with. 
at the same time, why do all the opportunities that are afforded to Native people have to come, you know, in the wake of, of you know, some, some terrible harm to our communities? It's just, you know, so I, I, it's one of those things that I think about a lot. Like someone, does someone out there have the answer to, to you know, because Native artists could just say no. The community could say, put Native artists in your collection. We want to see us in contemporary ways. And and have our contemporaneity celebrated by these institutions. And then if all the artists say, nope, not going to show there, you know, the, the, where one person's tactic is, here's reparative justice. And then another community's tactic is, is, you know, continuing, continue to say, say no. So I haven't. And then by just selling my work, I definitely cash a check. So, you know, what I, yeah. Do you have any answers, Joe, for me? What should I do when an evil museum wants my art? <laughs> should I sell them the art or should I tell them, you know, uh, because also if you say no to a museum, you also become super desirable to them. If you say no, then it's just like, oh, you, you know, something we can't have. Let's try to get it. <laughs> There's truth in that. There's a couple people that keep saying no to this podcast. And the more they say no, the more I want them as a guest. And it's like, just do it. And they're like, no. Okay. You know. Pretty please. <laughs> what you're describing, though, um, I think it's it's the it's a step within the evolution of of the of the art world that we exist in um because the definition of well what used to be called indian art was defined by white people 50 years ago and we've moved forward but every every generation of artists that takes those next steps they also take hits within the community because they're being questioned on why they're they're doing what they're doing but I think they're taking those hits for those who are coming behind them and they're, they're creating opportunities. They're normalizing. Um, I think this new art world, and it's, it's always going to be changing. It's always going to be um, evolving, but it takes, I think people to see these opportunities to, to make those hard decisions to sort of take the brunt of that criticism. So then eventually, yeah, it's, it's hard to well, describe. And we have to normalize our existence. Like we should have artists and athletes and all occupations and all walks of life. We, we need native representation there and we need to be seen and we need to not be in, invisible. And, you know, um, but it's complicated and it's extra complicated if there's, you know, you know, that I guess, you know, Vindaloria Jr. kind of described it as, you know, the, the crabs in the bucket syndrome and someone's you know making a career for themselves and everyone's like working their hardest to get them back in and i was was just going there yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know so so we have to you know like as my career like blooms and becomes you know more um you know larger than me i i have to recognize when like my peers or the, the the kids coming up behind me that they they need allies and they need people to rally around them and I'm trying to figure things out just as my peers have done for me you know I am such a a, um, a beneficiary so that the, on the receiving end I'm just really lucky um, that I've had people in my life you know John Quick to see Smith I remember really early on in my career 
I had, I was talking to her and she was um, describing to me all the sexism that she had experienced, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, you know, coming when she was coming into her own and, um, and it was horrifying, but then it was stuff that I've kind of cataloged in the back of my mind, um, things to be cautious about, you know, specific people to watch out for. Um, You know, she, she told me some, some terrible stories about, about, um, uh, people representing her work, galleries representing her work in New York, and things and tricks they had up their sleeves that that were robbing from her. I think from from artist perspective. Um, so I just it's good to know. It's good to know that what's what's out there and learn from others' experience. So we don't all have to keep learning. You know, learning for ourselves um, afresh. We should know the the colonial tricks and we should know the tactics that are that are used to, to hurt artists, I think. So I've, I've been cataloging my own experiences and, and trying to, to, you know, make, make younger artists, like kind of this, these things can happen and, you know, um, be, prepare yourself for, for this and these old, old patterns resurface and reformulate under new names. So, um, so I think that it's, you know, I, I don't want to dole out of a lot of advice, like I'm saying, but, you know, I, I, I definitely think that the further I go on in my career, the more I, I'm, I, I have this kind of side education that I didn't ask for. You know, I have this um, parallel edu- education on, on um, that this, this, this career makes you, your work desirable, but it also makes you as an artist me perhaps desirable. And when you start occupying this space of desirability, you're on the menu. You know, there's there there are um, there's there's there there becomes like a there's there's a market for you. And I think Native people have 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 felt this. You know, there's there's a market for our imagery. There's a market for you know our bodies and our labor. And I feel like we, in a sense, are also cannibalized by by colonization and settler colonialism I feel like we're we're consumed and we're very well aware of of um being kind of assimilated and and consumed um but it definitely happens to to artists individually too um so I mean I feel like I'm like full of complaints right now um like watch out the art world is nuts (laughs) but it's also like joy-filled landscape there's so so many cool things about it um but but yeah it's it's uh it's something that I, I think about a lot I'll even be you know talking in metaphor about this winter cannibal monster who misidentifies talking about you know, assimilation and a, a, a creating, like, collect, collecting museums. And that, that'll be the content of the work. Meanwhile, there'll be, like, almost this this frenzy around collecting my work. So, you know, like, I'm commenting on being consumed, and then it's happening. So <laughs> uh, it, it's really bizarre. <laughs> The ironic spaces that natives occupy, though, right? Like our whole, the worlds that natives occupy are so, they're just filled with irony. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I almost want to laugh at my next question is, is how do you <laughs> seek opportunities? <laughs> <laughs> 
avoid uh, them avoid all opportunities <laughs> stay in the studio don't come out <laughs> right just you know but i i do think early on in my career i tried to look for um things that i i knew i could accomplish things that um um you know maybe even low commitment and then trying to build up i will say that so Right after I got my MFA, I was offered a solo show at the Sioux Visual Arts Center, S-O-O, not S-I-O-U-X. It's like the Sioux line, you know, rail line. Anyway, <laughs> whenever I say Sioux Visual Arts Center, people are like, they have their own art center. <laughs> but a different, different Sioux. But, um, but they gave me my first solo show in, in 2006. Um and I think that first solo show where you as an artist um, really can pull a lot of, not pull a lot of strings, but you can, um, it's, it's your vision as an artist, uh, but, but entirely yours. It's not like you're accommodating other artists in the exhibition or that it's a curator's vision. It can be more self-curated and entirely your vision. So the, that first opportunity to do a solo show, um, it was really hard. I worked round the clock, you know, I had a residency for a month and I worked, you know, 16 hour days trying to get enough work for the solo show done. And I pulled all nighters up towards the end. And it was just such an incredible amount of, of work. And, um, the show goes up and, and it was, you know, I was very, very proud of it, but that illustrated in my own mind, you can do this. Like this can be a career. It illustrated for me like nothing can be harder of what I've harder than what I just pulled off. But now I can kind of see like, okay, this is what a solo show is like. Now do more of those. Now do like bigger, better ones of what you just did, and then you know kind of work off of off of that. I know how much labor goes into a solo show of all brand new work. Now I can, you know, maybe use some of that work into the next show, and it won't be as hard. Um, but that taught that first solo show taught me so much. It just it was, I think, really important to in, to my development as an artist. Was you know it was post MFA. I knew what I was doing. I just had to produce a large, coherent body of work. And then after that, I don't. I think that was probably the hardest show for me to pull off too. And then then from that, I had a body of slides that I used to apply for other exhibitions with, and I had really nice reviews and essays on my work for that show that first solo show I think was was just you know I, I would I really hope that if someone's going through and getting their MFA afterwards if they can secure a solo exhibition that's going to teach them so much more than than their formal education mm. so um so I would encourage someone to to secure that it's hard though because if you don't have an exhibition background if you don't have uh, a huge history. There's not a lot of galleries that take chances on emerging artists for that first solo show. So if anyone at the Plains is listening, give those artists their first solo shows. It is so good for for artists' careers. Um, it's just it's it's super. It's it's very very important. I <clears throat> I completely agree. I think that's great. Um, so this sort of rolls into uh, the fifth question is, what would you want to say to the 18 or the 22-year-old who's listening right now? So 18 to 22 is such a cool age. I'm 41 right now. So I've had you know plenty of time to really 
um, you know, to really kind of flesh out a, a career and a, a vision. But when I was 18 to 22, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, you definitely want to experiment. You want to play with mediums. You want to figure out what where your voice is, what pitch your voice is. You're looking for, for you know, that, that thread that you're going to follow through and make consistent bodies of work. Consistent bodies of work don't have, you all don't, you have to experiment always, like, but just critically look at the work that you're making, put it on the wall, step back and pretend it's someone else that made it. And then, because I did that with my exhibition with Jim Denemy at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, I had like, I don't know, maybe 15 paintings that were 22 by 30 inches large. And so I was looking at the gallery space and squinting my eyes, like, what does this exhibition look like? And I was like, those would be a lot better if they were meatier in this space. The space is huge and it's drowning out the work. If they were four times larger than that scale, this would be such a cool show. So, But I was looking at it very critically. And then, then I just took four sheets of paper, put them together, and made work just assembling four pieces of paper. But it was, you know, analyzing prior work. So be a scientist about your work, do something, look at it very critically, pretend someone else painted it and what would you say about it, um, put it on the wall, take a step back and it's like, what is, how does this feel in this space? What could change? What could you work in relationship to each other? What story is it telling? What, you know, just really, really take a critical eye to your own work and you, you'll know your, your best work from the ones that, you know, were just filling space we do that all the time we have like the really knockouts and then we have the ones that are like I needed more work for this show (laughs) (laughs) and then like what did you do right and how did you fail um art is problem solving really like you have a sheet of if you have a sheet of white paper that's the problem you know and then you one decision leads to another decision and it's kind of this conversation back and forth so um so so but think of your exhibits that way too not just what's on the the page um think about you know maybe even think about your your career that way when you're starting to if stuff's starting to lead one way and it's making you uncomfortable try to steer it the other way you know I was nervous early on in my career that I was being kind of pigeonholed as like the the native artist and like only native curators could work with me or write about my work and I was like no I want to have a larger conversation I want to bring other people in um uh so that's when I started really addressing museum spaces. So, so yeah, I think for an 18 to 22 year old, just, you know, start almost being scientific about your, your work, really, you know, draw, try everything out, experiment and take a really critical eye. Try not to, if you have critiques, if you're in college and you have to go through critiques, it's not personal. Just if someone's giving you advice, you know, or if someone's like showing you, how things could be different. Don't lock in and defend it to the end. Like really kind of stay open-minded. Don't fix fixate on something. Just really, as much as you want other people to be open-minded about your work, be open-minded about your own work and really take a step back and don't, um, don't become overly um, uh, defensive. Uh, that's one of the things I think grad school taught me more than like they didn't teach me how to how to draw. They they taught me how to deal with criticism. Yeah. And I'm glad for it. So when I was in grad school, um I uh I was at a animation school and 
one of the one of the classes um the instructor was an animator and she worked for disney and she specifically worked on villains and so she had this attitude about herself and her critiques were so harsh and brutal and you'd walk out of the class sometimes just exhausted you know but we got better and she she stripped away all the niceties and just got right to the point of what you were doing, I guess, wrong, uh, or at least <laughs> uh, in her eyes from her perspective as a professional. But her approach also was that she, she didn't want us to go through school and think that everything was, was easy and that we were doing great stuff because she knew that those um, – those art directors were going to be just as hard because they're under pressure to get their projects done. And so you had to be able to take uh, criticism and direction uh, at a high speed pace in that field. But it was still the same though. Um, critiques in grad school are a whole different thing than critiques in undergrad for sure. Yeah. And, and then when you graduate from grad school, I haven't really received harsh critiques. People might be thinking things, but like, when you're in school, it's like the safe space where people can tell you, hey, this is wrong. Do this differently. What about this? What about that? Mm-hmm. But when when I graduated post-graduation, it was people liked it or they didn't, but you didn't, you weren't afforded criticism in the same way. So mm-hmm. definitely build out that community of other artists that's like, that's a weird color. Why did you do that? <laughs> you know, people <laughs> that can speak honestly with you and tease you about your work. Um I, you know, was making these really kind of cartoonish um, characters early on in my career. And I did this one, it was supposed to be a lynx. And um, my husband comes in and he's like, it's the, it's itchy and scratchy cat. And I looked at it and it was, and I was (laughs) so upset about that. Um, And then, you know, I, I pitched a fit and then he's like, okay, never, never commenting on her art again because she can't take it from the husband so um uh but yeah definitely build out a a, a, like a community of artist friends that can talk honestly about your work who can who can applaud you and applaud your successes you know I love artists that really applaud each other's successes that you know uh it's, it's just like that's that, that cool, generous spirit that I feel like especially artists who are Native can, like, you know, often do for each other. And I I don't know. I think it's really cool. It's, it's something that it's, it's an asset to our community when we're, when we're like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so where can, where can someone find uh, your work? Uh, how can I connect with you in that way? Well, I already said that my work was collected by the the walker, but I don't think it's on display anymore. <laughs> um, but, um, but the Bokley Gallery in Minneapolis, um, Todd Bokley, who runs that, that gallery, um, represents my my work. And okay. he's just, you know, an amazing community ally and just so just such a cool guy very easy to work with but he he represents a number of native artists as well as non-native artists and he's it's just a small casual space that um located in in minneapolis and then um you know my work is like right now the there's this billboard outside of the whitney museum in new york and they made 
uh, one of my larger pieces into a billboard that's um, out near the Whitney Museum. Um, so if you're in New York, you could see the billboard of some of my work. Um, I haven't even seen it yet, so knock yourself out. Uh, we do have then, listeners in New York, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> listeners in New York, go go check out the Whitney and see my 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 big piece. Um, and then there's going to be five billboards along the Chicago River um, next month or in a couple of months that say you're on Potawatomi land in Potawatomi and English. And, but, you know, there's some background imagery to it too, but, um, but that's going to be uh, the Chicago River, which intersects with the DuSable Bridge, uh, Michigan Avenue, um, connecting Upper and Lower Walker Drive. There's, that's where there's going to be these five giant screens up and so that's really exciting because that that land is it's not seeded and it has a, just a, a tremendous story um uh what the, the Pokagon band of Potawatomi sued Chicago to to have that land back and and failed I think in 1917 and it was it's a really the sandbar claim case and it's um a really interesting story and so but putting those signs those reaffirmations of like nope this is this is Potawatomi land. Um, hmm. I'm not Potawatomi. I'm Ojibwe, but we're we're cousins. You know, the Anishinaabe connection yes. <laughs> is, is strong in in Chicago. So, um, so I'm really excited about that one. Oh, that's great, Andrea. Thank you so much for your time. This was a oh, lot of fun. Oh, thank you for having me, Miigwech. <laughs> <laughs> And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Andrea again for her time and sharing her story and perspective with us. Uh, this this conversation um, was probably one of the the, the more real conversations uh, that um, that I've had, really unedited, uh, during the course of this podcast. Uh, now I wanted to address uh, one of the things that we talked about was was really for indigenous artists having a place at the table. I think for so long, gatekeepers have kept indigenous artists in a certain genre, in a certain place uh, that fits the needs of non-native uh, curators and in, individuals and institutions. And we're at a point now where we no longer need to, we know we have a place at the table and we don't need to ask permission to sit at that table any longer. And I think it's important on the flip side that indigenous artists support each other, you know, opportunities come up and we need to take those opportunities and those opportunities that would, that are normally there for non-native artists who wouldn't blink a, an eye at taking advantage of opportunities that are out there. Uh, one, not to only promote their careers, but to normalize the space that indigenous artists have at the table. Um, and so it's those two things. It's, it's one being able to, to take a place, take up space, and to honor that. And, but most importantly is to keep that door open for those behind you, for those younger artists, for those emerging artists, to let them in as well and to support and to promote them. Um, Andrea had mentioned um, uh, Vine Deloria, his, his, what, his statement on crabs in the bucket and that is so absolutely real that we are really hardest on ourselves hardest on our own people who are trying to make it and it, it just it really tells
is more about ourselves and how we react to people's success. Um, whether we support them or we try to tear them down. I, I've said this for a long time, you know, I don't want to be the first to be, you know, I don't want to be the first Dakota to do this or the first to do that. I just want to be someone that's doing something. And I think those who want to have their own art galleries, that's not my gallery, I support that. Get out there, make it happen. If you have questions on how to do that, come talk to me. It's the same with the podcast. I don't want to be the Native American art podcast that, you know, is sort of the exclusive whatever. I want you to have your own podcast. I want you to have access to voices that I don't have access to. So we promote and support each other. And whether it's it's these fine things or you want to have, you know, your own Native American auto service or, you know, dentist office or whatever whatever that is whatever it's your thing I want you to succeed in that I want you to be uh, the best version of yourself to do that but then support others in their dreams um, this crabs in the bucket thing is so prevalent and is one of as as a people it's one of our our biggest detriments that somehow we need to get over and so yeah um, you know it's it's the good work of Andrea and artists of her generation and the generations before that are opening doors to emerging artists and those who are trying to figure out and those who aren't even artists yet who have yet to discover their passion. So uh, that's something I just wanted to acknowledge. So um, if you want to check out her work, uh, check out Bulkley Gallery in Minneapolis. Um, the list of indigenous artists that Todd supports is incredible. And Todd is such a great guy. Have a conversation with him. He's he's so well versed and uh, a wealth of knowledge. So I just wanted to give a shout out to them. I've worked with him in the past. And I really really enjoyed it. Uh, more importantly, I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna. That's C A N A A. Creativity among Native American artists on Facebook or their plainsart.org website. There you can see this programming, uh, past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, uh, message me, and I would really like to hear from you. All right, take care, and I will see you next week.